0: And because the tomb is empty, ours will be one day too. And because there is an empty tomb, that empty tomb has something to speak into any form of emptiness you experience in your life. And that's what I want to talk about today, how the empty tomb, the fact that the tomb is empty, it speaks a word into any form of emptiness you currently feel, feel or that you will feel one day. Joni Erickson Tata had an accident when she was a teenager. It was a diving accident. She's uh, been paralyzed since she was a teenager. And that was an accident in her life that didn't push her away from God. It drew her closer to God. So she has now lived over 50 years in a wheelchair where she has written books. And she has uh, been all over the world teaching about the grace of God in the midst of suffering. She has pastored so many people. And in her autobiography, she talked about what she thinks it's going to be like when she encounters Jesus in heaven for the first time. Now, we're not told in the Bible what this is going to be like, but I bet most of you at some point in your life, like, you've thought about it. Like, what is it going to be like when you see Jesus face-to-face for the first time? What are you going to say? What is the experience going to be like? And here's, here's what she said in her autobiography. She said this. When I get to heaven, I am going to push my wheelchair to the throne of Jesus. And notice, I'll be walking And I'm going to thank him for every character refining work he did in me and through me because of this wheelchair. And then I'm going to ask Jesus to send this wheelchair straight to hell. (laughs) Because it was only needed because of the wreckage of sin. Because there is an empty tomb, it speaks a word into any form of emptiness that we may experience in our lives. And for me, in some ways, Easter feels like it was two days ago, and in some ways, Easter feels like it was six months ago. And I would say the last weekend, I thought it was the best Good Friday and Easter service we've ever had, and I've probably said that before. And I'm just basing that not on how many people were in this room or in this space or joining us online, but just the stories I've heard of spiritual breakthrough and work, the work of God in people's lives. And it was just so good. The energy in this place last weekend, Friday night and Sunday morning, it was so thick. It was memorable. I'm going to tell stories about it and spiritual breakthrough for years and years to come. But then we've experienced a week where we are reminded that there's still war and there's still disease and there is still brokenness. I know multiple people in this space today. You have had loved ones who have passed away in the last seven days. I mean, there's so many things that have happened. We're reminded of bills that have, need to be paid and doctor's visits we got to go to. And then I'm uh, probably not the only one that, I mean, went to bed last night angry because of the Grizzlies game. For, the, for 10 hours, I've been asking God to help me not take out my anger on the church I love. All right, so, so we are hoping that God is gracious and grants the answer to that prayer this morning. When Jesus rose from the dead, have you ever thought about the people he chose to encounter? He appeared first to women. Then he appeared to his followers, his disciples, his apostles. And then, according to other stories, Jesus appeared to people over about a six-week period of time, around 500 people, and he appeared to them. Now, as far as those stories we read, Jesus did not appear to one non-believer. And it would have made sense for Jesus to do that, but he didn't. Around 500 people he appeared to, he interacted with, he ate meals with for about six weeks after he rose from the dead. And all of those are some of his followers. Have you ever thought about who Jesus chose not to appear to? Like you would think that, in, that appearing to Herod as the risen Lord would have done something to Herod's life. Like one of those 3 a.m.s, you know, those of you who have children, you've had the three or four-year-old come in your room at night and not say a word, just stand by your bed. And then you roll over and open your eyes, and there's your child with eyes wide open. It's like, you got to say something when you come in here. What if Jesus would have done that to Herod, right? Or to Pilate, or the Caiaphas, the high priest, or some of those other people who were yelling, crucify him. I wish Jesus would have appeared to some of those people, but he, he chose not to. And maybe because Jesus trusted his followers so much that when they see me, they're going to go live me for, throughout the entire world. Maybe, maybe that's how it works. Jesus did so many ordinary things after he rose from the dead. The very first thing Jesus did, and I'm going to talk about this in a few weeks, is there are unique elements in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about the resurrection of Jesus. Like Matthew tells you some things that Mark, Luke, and John don't. All of them tell you little pieces. But according to one gospel writer, the first thing Jesus did when he rose from the dead is he folded his clothes in linens. So some of you, that's the first thing you do when you wake up. You make sure that bed is perfectly great, but like you didn't know you're, you're following the resurrected Jesus when you do that. And can we just be honest? If Jesus folded a fitted sheet when he rose from the dead, like it is a witness that there is nothing the resurrection of Jesus can't do, right? It's the first thing he did. He folded clothes. And then you see Jesus walking on the road. You see Jesus eating meals. He's cooking fish. He's Just hanging out with people. And then you have a couple of scenes where there are unordinary things that happen, where Jesus just appears in a room or disappears from a room. Around 40 days, a few weeks, Jesus appeared to around 500 people, and there are a lot of people Jesus chose not to appear to as well. And on that weekend of death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, what changed? I mean, I think you would agree that on the cross, there are things that have changed forever, right? Like, because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, his death, there have been things that have been changed forever. And in that moment, things changed. When Jesus rose from the dead, things changed. They have been changed forever. But in that moment, in the weeks to come, there were some things that didn't change at all. Like, nothing seemed to change about the Roman Empire. Nothing seemed to change about the way Herod went about doing Herod things, or the way Pilate went about leading, or the way some of the religious leaders went about their lives. In fact, persecution would continue. Like, there were a lot of things in the world that didn't change at all. And even for the apostles, you read the book of Mark, and Mark ends by telling you that the followers of Jesus, like, they move forward with fear and trembling. So it's not like day one, Jesus rose from the dead, and all of a sudden, the church and the followers of Jesus didn't have any fears anymore. They were full of fear. And the losses in their life would continue to stack. And one thing I talked to you about like last week was, I mean, what do you do in your life when those losses seem to stack? I mean, losses of like financial income or losses of friends or family members or or losses. I mean, just loneliness, like those losses that seem to stack and what happens in life if the losses stack and we fail to live from a place of victory. But I also asked you last week, what happens if those losses in your life do stack and you choose to live from a place of victory? And for the followers of Jesus, the losses in their life would continue to stack upon each other. I mean, their, cho- their choice to follow Jesus meant that they lost jobs and financial security and a lot of them lost friends and relatives and there was social pressure and physical pressure and, and persecution that happened and the empty tomb. Filled every form of emptiness that they faced, And here's a myth about Christianity. Is that some people will say and even teach that because Jesus is alive, he will protect you from every form of suffering. When reality is Jesus is alive, but suffering continues. And one day we will be raised in glory. And one day suffering will be redeemed. And I don't believe that one day God's going to make sense of all the suffering you've experienced in your life. I don't believe it. I do believe at one point, one day, that suffering will be redeemed forever. Let me offer up to you Romans chapter 5 today as a blessing for your life. In Romans chapter 5, Paul is writing to people in Rome who are facing all kinds of physical and social pressure. And here's what he says. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our, say it out loud, what do we boast in? Our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our suffering. It took guts for Paul to write some of the things he wrote and to believe some of the things he believed. We don't just boast in our glory, we boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And say this with me, character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Now, I think most people in the Roman Empire, most pagans, would have agreed with most of that. I think endurance was a virtue. It was a value that people in that world taught and they tried to practice. They knew they needed endurance in life. And I think character for many people in the Roman Empire and pagans was a value, even though their character may not look like what the character of Christ looked like, but they lived in an honor-shame culture where reputation mattered. But I don't think any of them held hope as a value. In fact, they would sometimes mock it, even believing that Zeus gave hope to people just to kind of dangle a carrot and to make your life a life of torment. Yet for Christians, they were offered hope. Where no matter what's happening in your life and what circumstances there are, God calls you to endurance, that leads you to character and you cling to hope and this hope does not disappoint. I think Romans chapter eight is one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible. If I were to give you one chapter for you to study for the rest of your life, it would be in one of the top three chapters I would give you. And in Romans chapter eight, verses 18 through 25, here's what Paul writes them. He says, we, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. And against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Amen? Like, look, Listen to that. That we will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. And we believers, we also groan. Even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. So we too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. And if we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. And throughout life, there are times losses stack, times we lose dreams, times we may feel empty, times life may leave us empty, but the empty tomb has something to speak to all all forms of emptiness. Let me show you a few images real quick. If you'll throw up this first image right here. All right, the other day, Casey and I, and let me set it up like this and then we're gonna p- play a quick game. Um, <clears throat> the other day, I saw this on Casey's phone. Casey and I, we chose a, few, a couple of weeks ago to engage in a 45-day challenge. It's a 45-day challenge, it's basically a Whole30 diet, which is code language for your life will be miserable for 45 days. Any kind of diet you try to do, especially in Memphis, like you are just surrounded by food. Everywhere we go, there's food and and good food. Thursday, I had a luncheon at Harding School of Theology and there was the greatest dessert spread I think I've ever seen in my life. Not just one bowl of banana pudding, but two. And I, I, I know the Bible pretty well, so I was trying to justify things like in Luke chapter 10, Jesus says, eat whatever is before you and I don't like to disobey Jesus, all right? Uh, But I I couldn't go there with my theology or logic, all right? But Casey and I have also committed that we're working out almost every day. There's like 20, 30 minutes of exercises that we do. We were working out the other day, and Casey had her phone out because she was keeping track of how long we were doing a few exercises, and I asked her to take a screenshot. So I took a screenshot. Now, here's the game we're going to play just for for a moment. You have two options with the next three images I'm going to place in front of you. And the two options are... Do I do something now or no need to worry? So I'm going to show you an image, and your options are, do I do something now or no need to worry? So if you go to this next image right here, here is why I asked Casey to take a screenshot of her phone. I noticed her phone was down to 11%, and she didn't seem to care about it at all. So a phone is on 11%, do something now, no need to worry. <laughs> My phone ne- never goes under 80%. I know people say your battery may die quicker. I don't care. Like if it's at 80, I need to I need so, some way to plug it in. Let's go to the next image right here. This has happened to all of us. Do something now. No need to worry. The red actually means <laughs> it actually means you got 30 miles left, right? <laughs> One more for you, all right? Here it is. Do something now. What about me? <laughs> right? Some of you are like that's been up there for a month and I haven't done anything. Do something now. Maybe do something later, all right? If you start hearing, you know, air coming out of the tire or you wake up and it's completely flat, you do something, all right? And I think the better question for us this morning in this room is what do you do like when your soul's empty, right? When you are feeling empty, do you do something now? Or you just tell yourself, I, let me just wait a little later. It will take care of itself if I can just get to summertime, if I can just get to the holiday, if I can just get to the weekend, if I can just get to retirement, then maybe I can find that rest that I think God wants to give me. Wayne Cordero wrote a book on leadership years ago. I've handed this book out to so many people. A short little book on leadership. It's called Leading on Empty. And in the book, he talks about running a marathon in Hawaii. If you've got to run a marathon in Hawaii, it's probably not a bad place to run one. And he said his coach trained him that every 15 minutes you need to drink six, six ounces of water and if you skip because you think you are not thirsty, it will end up biting you in the end. So even if you're not thirsty, every 15 minutes, you got to drink four to six ounces of water. What do you do when you feel empty? So Jesus rose from the dead, interacted with his followers for around 40 days. Around six weeks, he's interacting with them. They're, they're eating meals. They're sharing stories. He's cooking fish for them on the beach. And then Jesus ascends into the heavens... And I'm sure at that moment, they are ready to do whatever it is Jesus wants them to do. Like, Jesus, you want us to go start a church? We'll go start a church. You want us to go start a nonprofit to care for people? We'll go start a nonprofit. Like, what do you want us to do for you? We'll go do it. And then you open the book of Acts, and you start reading. And it's called Acts because there's a lot of things. There's action, right? The Acts of the Holy Spirit, the Acts of the church, Acts of people. Yet the very first command in the book of Acts isn't for you to go and teach, or to go and preach, or to go and feed the hungry. It's in Acts chapter 1, verse 4 where the first command Jesus gave them is, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait. And Jesus doesn't say how long they're supposed to wait. He doesn't even tell them what they're supposed to wait for. He just says, you go to Jerusalem and you wait. I came across a story this past week. A guy named David, he took on a new adventure in his life a new vocation. And it was there that he thought this was going to bring so much joy. It left him disappointed. There was this disappointment after disappointment about this new adventure he had in his life. And here's what he ended up writing. And I thought this was so good. I just wanted to bless you with this today. He said, Faith, as I am growing to understand it more, is about looking beyond my circumstances to a person. To have faith in better circumstances, even in God creating better circumstances, is not true faith. I want to be the kind of man who can watch every dream go down in flames and still yearn to be intimately involved in kingdom living, intimately involved with my friend the king, and still be willing to take another risk just because it delights him for me to do so. And my flesh shivers to think about it. A phrase I've just been praying through in my own life and over you this entire week is this. And if you'll go back and show this quote up on the screen. It's, it's in, the, in the waiting, we learn this, that there is a divine presence waiting to be discovered. All right, in the waiting, there is a God waiting to be discovered. And this doesn't mean like God's playing hide and go seek from us, right? And you just have to try to find God. It's that sometimes it's not until we sit still And we wait as people who are clinging to hope that our eyes are open to see what God's up to around us. There's a woman in Louisiana, and when she died, her request was on her tombstone, was for there to be one word. So it was her name, right? When she was born, when she died, in this one word. And the one word she wanted on there. For every time people came to visit her, or passed by her grave, the one word they would see was waiting. It's waiting. Waiting on the full redemption of God. So I don't know for some of you, like I'm not going to try to manipulate you to try to reveal to you all the ways you were empty. Some of you may not feel empty at all right now, but there will be a day in your life that there's going to be some emptiness that settles in. And for some of you today, it may be a word that you use to describe yourself and where you are. Like you just, you feel empty. And whether that's how you feel today, or whether it may be how you feel down the road as a church, can we just pray over each other this morning as we take communion, as we pray here in a few minutes, that we want to be people who are not just clinging to hope for ourselves, but we're taking the hands of those around us and helping them cling to hope too, no matter what. As we go into communion this morning, i want to leave you with Romans chapter 8. I told you it's one of my favorite chapters. I committed this to memory a few years ago. I still recite it. I practice it. I pray it. And one of the reasons I love Romans chapter 8, it's not just because of the truth it speaks. It's because of the questions Paul asks. Because I think there's some of the same questions that we still ask to this day. And some of them he answers. Some of them I think you know what the answer is. But in verse 31, Paul says, like, what are we supposed to say about all these things? Like, all the things he talked about in the first 30 verses of Romans 8, about there being no condemnation for those who are in Christ, about the Spirit of God interceding for you in ways that you cannot even express. What are we supposed to say about all of these things? And then he says this, if God is for us, Who could ever be against us? And then what he says is this, that if God is willing to offer up his own son for us, what makes you think God's not going to give us everything else? It's Paul's way of reminding the church that in Christ, like God is going to fill your daily needs, and one day God's going to make all things right in your life and in this world. What makes you think God's not going to do all this for his children? And then he asks two questions. And the way he asks them and they follow up one after another is this. Like, who is it that's going to bring an accusation against you? Who's going to bring any accusation against the people of God? And then he follows that up with who is going to condemn us. And when it comes to who brings an accusation and when it comes to who's going to condemn us, the answer is Jesus. But the way Paul describes Judge Jesus isn't a judge who is angry and, and quick to hand out punishments. The way he does it is this. Here's what Jesus did. He died. Four things he died. He rose from the dead. He sits at the right hand of God, a place of completion. And fourthly, he lives to intercede for his people. What is Jesus doing today? He is living to intercede for his people. So in verse 35, he asked the question, who can separate us from the love of God? Who, not what, who can separate us from the love of God? And then he starts naming things as if he's giving you the chance with your imagination to name things too. All the who's and all the what's to try to separate you from the love of God. And then his move in verse 37 is, no. in all these things we are more than conquerors because of him who loves us. And he says, for I am convinced that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. There is no power in the world. There is no power in the spiritual world. There is no height. There is no depth. There's nothing in all of creation that can separate God's people from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the message that we cling to even when we feel empty today we're going to move the table. Some of you have prepackaged communion. You may already have the bread and the cup in your hands. We have six tables around this room, and we've done it a little differently than we had the last few weeks. There's actually a, uh, a bowl in the middle that has bread that you can just take a piece of bread, so now you're not trying to take two cups and get one off the other. All right, it's been a challenge. And you're offered right now, I mean, to go to a table and you can take the bread and the cup. You can take those and go anywhere in this room with family and friends where you may choose to commune together. You may go back to your seat to reflect on, on your relationship with God and maybe your relationship with other people. And maybe today you take Romans 8 with you. And just reflect on some of those same questions Paul asks. And in this moment, we have a shepherd in the front and a shepherd in the back. Sam, I know you are a shepherd A. If you'll go ahead and make your way up to the front so people can see where you will be up front. And shepherds, if you want to go to the tables just to be there while people come by and take the bread and the cup, just to be present, uh, feel free to move to one of those tables now. And if there's anything you can bring before this church, you need to bring before this church for prayer. If there's anything we can do for you, we have a connect card on our website ways we can pray, ways we can help you understand who Jesus is in your life. And right now, there'll just be some soft music being played over us, and I just invite you, at your pace, we have about five minutes to do this, at your pace, make your way to one of the tables. Can we bow our heads, close our eyes? For Jesus, your work on Easter weekend is a work that still continues to this day, and we are thankful for it. Today, we thank you that there is nothing that can separate us from your love. And because the tomb is empty, there is a filling that comes from your spirit today. So with open hearts, open hands, open minds, we are here to receive from you as we give thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please make your way to a table.